This is Structure, the podcast. I'm Sam Ward. And I'm Michelle Rose. We talk to the designers and minds behind the most creative products in the outdoor industry. This week on Structure, we talk with Anton Willis, Chief Design Officer at Oru Kayak. He's built a thriving company around a folding kayak that was inspired by origami. First of all, I just wanted to get a little bit of your background. And so I was wondering if you could just tell us about uh, what you were doing before you started Oru Kayak. Sure. Um, I'm trained as an architect, and uh, I was doing that before starting Oru Kayak. I worked for a few small architecture studios in the Bay Area. To me, it seems clear that the Oru Kayak like, was born from your love of kayaking. And so I was just wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about you know, how you got the idea to create this product. So, yeah, I grew up doing a little bit of paddling, but uh, ironically, I, I got much more into it when I moved to the Bay Area. That was partly because I just found that uh, getting out on the water on the Bay was kind of the fastest, easiest way for me to have a real feeling of, of being out there and being in nature, not having to drive three hours to the mountains, but just being able to kind of go right outside my door and get on the water. Were you living in an area of like in the city, whatnot, where it was really easy for you to get to the water? Yeah, actually, when I when I first started it, I was maybe half a mile from the water, and I was I was fairly close, but still, uh, I would still drive there because obviously I had a kayak, and um, that was the only way to get it a half a mile. <laughs> uh, so uh, that that changed when I moved to a studio apartment in San Francisco and had to put my fiberglass kayak in storage. And uh, at about the same time, I read a magazine article on origami. Mm-hmm. about artists and scientists and engineers who were devising new amazing things to do with it. So that's really what sparked the initial idea of, hey, could I actually make a kayak that folded up like a piece of paper? And so after you had the initial idea of trying to create a kayak out of origami, you know, what was that process like? Like, how did you go from just like, I'm, you know, just folding up a napkin into an, you know, into a finished product? Yeah, well, it did start um, not quite folding up a napkin, but just sheets of eight and a half by 11 printer paper. That was the actual first step. Uh, and that got into some cardboard models and then uh, full-size prototypes uh, using plastic from a sign shop. The, the first prototype ever sank in about 30 seconds. I remember but, you uh, saying that. But unfortunately, it kept going and <laughs> kept building a lot of prototypes over the next few years. Now, was that a manned prototype? Yeah, yeah, that was that was me in it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing. Well, how did you come up with the idea of using the plastic? You know, the sign because that's what we can tell it's that sign material. But uh, right. what was that little spark or that idea or thought that led you right to that? Yeah, I'd used the material a bit in uh, grad school for making models and other mm. things, uh, so I was somewhat familiar with the properties. And uh, you know, after some internet research, it seemed like the the right combination of things. You know, it's waterproof and foldable and lightweight and strong for its weight. So we still use a, a variation on it. It's it's custom made to our specs and it's a lot tougher and more durable than uh, what you find in signs or boxes. But it's, it's the same essential material. You know, you, you said you made several prototypes, you got it working and it worked for you. Um, that stage of that step of, I don't know, you, you build it, you make it for yourself, it works, and then you, what do you do from there? You know, like you've, you've made it for yourself. At what point did you start thinking about building it into a business? That was actually quite a long process. It started as just um, a fun hobby, a weekend project, and then kind of very gradually started taking over my life. You know, it was a, 
a full four or five years between uh, the first prototype and actually launching the business. And I, I think that's not atypical <laughs> for uh, you know for people in that position to. Uh, I think both the the realities of uh, prototyping and product developing with you know not only no in, no company infrastructure behind you but also a full time job. Just making that leap um, to actually being able to start a business and knowing how to do it. Like a lot of designers, I didn't have a business background before doing this, so mm-hmm. there were a lot of challenges on that side as well. Can you say a little bit more about what that process w- was like, going from you know having it be something that was you know just for your personal use to something that you even thought you could bring to the market? Like, did somebody come up to uh, you sure, and say, yeah. that's really cool, I really would like one too, or you should do that, or did you already have that in mind? A lot of that did happen pretty organically. When I was just doing it for fun, I would have picnics on the water and invite friends, and we'd take mm. kayaks out and have fun. And yeah, and eventually people started asking, hey, you know, what is that? Can I buy one? Um, is it a product? And I, what's what's actually really cool is... Um, there was a woman uh, we ran, I ran into twice in consecutive years in Marin kayaking on China Camp State Park, and uh, she ended up as one of our first Kickstarter backers. I know at one point or another, you guys were developing the product out at Tech Shop, and what was that like? You know, working in the context of a makerspace. Tech Shop was a, a really great place to work, and uh, I'm, I'm still a member, and we still do some prototyping there. Obviously, the access to prototyping tools and the design software and tools were really essential, uh, but also the community there was was incredibly helpful, especially in uh, the sort of early days of launching the business. I was able to find people who would uh, launched successful Kickstarter campaigns and kind of made the same transition from uh, designer maker to uh, business person that I was trying to go through, so that was very helpful. So it sounds like they had a lot of support for you while you were there. Yeah, there was a lot of support and a lot of it just through uh, other peers and other other people making cool things there. Yeah, that kind of support is really important. Just being around other people who are making things and, and staying at it and sharing ideas, that, that seems to be what's really strong about those spaces. Yeah, absolutely. When you were first building the kayak, going back to your first prototyping process initially, what were some of the most challenging parts of building the first one, aside from, you know, obviously sinking, that was your first one and you move on from there. But I know you you said you made a lot of prototypes and obviously you had a ton of challenges. What were some of the biggest ones that stand out for you? So the the reason the first one sank was that it was made from a single four by eight foot sheet of material, which is not big enough to make a kayak for an adult. Finding a big enough sheet of flat material to make a, a full-sized kayak out of was was a pretty big challenge. So typically for things like that, there are four by eight stock sheets of stuff. And if you want anything that's a custom size, you're ordering, you know, thousands of square feet um, for a, a custom extrusion run. So I finally found a, a greenhouse manufacturer that, that sold uh, sheets in a size I could use. That was a pretty big breakthrough. And then once you found those sheets... Did it all come gonna... together pretty smoothly after that? Um <laughs> I wouldn't say anything necessarily came together that smoothly. Um, there were, yeah, a lot of prototypes. No direct sinkings after the first one, but definitely some uh, some educated failures. The kayak itself is so unique. And so I'm just wondering, like, did you find it more difficult to form the materials into something that would handle well as a kayak? Or was it more mm-hmm. difficult to get it down to compress to a size that was actually practical? 
There was definitely a balancing act between the kayak's performance in the water and getting it to fold into a, a compact box. In the end, I think it, it's kind of surprising how well it does at both of those, but uh, I think there was a, a level of perfectionism or, or I guess a resistance to <laughs> to accepting trade-offs through a lot of the process, which I think is part of the reason there were so many prototypes and it took so long. Yeah, because when you think about a kayak, obviously, like that was the thing that intrigued me uh, the most was the shape that you know, kayaks and, mm-hmm. and canoes, whether they have been in the past, you know, canoes made out of wood or fiberglass or the, you know, any of the molded materials, that they always have a very smooth shape. They've always been very shaped, uh, just like anything right. they use on the water. And here you have this origami thing that obviously still has this great shape to it, but it's origami. It's a series of, of flat panels. And I always think about all those join seams where everything is, is, is coming together or bending. And how does that work? How are those weak spots? How did you overcome that? Were they not weak mm-hmm. spots, etc.? cetera? Um, the origami shape is amazing, but I, I, I can't quite bridge to you know, what <laughs> I'm used to a kayak being to that and how you made it work. So as I was doing origami research uh, in the very early days, one of the the interesting things I found is that you can do a lot of shapes and forms with origami that aren't kind of angular, faceted, the kind of things you typically think of. You can do curves and smooth, lofted surfaces. You can do curved crease folds, and the final product ends up using a lot of those so that, you know, really when you look at it, and this happens, uh, people look at it in the water and just have no idea that it folds. It just looks like any other kayak. And that's something I think is actually pretty cool and interesting from a design perspective. You know, a lot of times uh, designers are tasked with coming up with a, a new exotic form for something. And in this case, the, the form was kind of the starting point. You know, kayaks have been around for thousands of years in a, a very recognizable form. And I think in many ways, there's really no reason to tinker with that. It's, um, you know, it's incredibly efficient for what it does. And, uh, you know, the Inuit were onto something when they, when they started designing <laughs> thousands of years ago. So I took the tack of really uh, treating that form as a given and uh, just seeing what I could do with the actual folding. And then what about some of the other components that go into the kayak, like the seals and the, the clasps that hold it together? Um, was that a pretty straightforward part of the process? Or did you face some of the same hurdles in designing those components as well yeah a lot of the little details did take a lot of time um partly because i'm not an industrial designing designer by nature and i was kind of learning how to how to do a lot of it uh on the job i wanted to go into talking about the uh the color palette i love i mean Mm -hmm. it's pretty simple you know you've got your white your black and your orange and i love that that very clean, clear story mm-hmm. being a, a very strong uh, in color myself, a very interested mm-hmm. in how color comes together and what it does. How did you land on that? I mean, it's really clear about the, uh, the material from the signs. Did you just choose to keep that material in that traditional white that it usually is? Um, was the black dictated by the materials you chose and why did you choose the orange as that third color as your color pop? I'd say the color scheme was a combination of uh, kind of lucky accidents and um, <laughs> and hopefully some de- some intentional design perspective also. <laughs> now, as I mentioned, the, uh, the prototyping material I ended up getting was from a greenhouse manufacturer, so it was made to be translucent, mm. which it still is. So, you know, there are 
a couple really cool features. You know, it glows like a lantern if you light it up at night. You can see the water line um, when you're in the kayak through the through the skin itself. Oh, um, nice! And I think it just it it lends really a sense of lightness. It kind of communicates how how physically light it is. Also, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's about half the weight of roto molded kayaks, and I think it helps express that. The black we kind of kept for for neutral items. The orange initially was another material accident. There was a, a certain fiberglass component in some of the early ones that was that was bright orange, and it just looked really good against the translucent white. Um, so there's no longer any of that plastic, but we we kept it for the color. And I think uh, just from a, a brand perspective, I think it's kind of a nice offset to the the kind of minimalist, sleek translucent white. It gives it a little more warmth and brings back a nice balance between the the clean minimalist and the kind of fun poppy aspects of it. I'm wondering if you could just go back to some of those trade-offs that you were facing during the design process. Uh, were, were those kind of the two main trade-offs that you mentioned, kind of the maintaining the form of the kayak and the compactness when it's when it's folded up? Were there any other uh, trade-offs that you had to kind of grapple with, like in terms of uh, weight or durability of the materials or anything like that? Yeah, yeah, there were several. There was weight versus dirty. There's a, how complicated it is for someone to set up. And, uh, you know, in the end, there was one about cost versus overall quality. And, um, yeah. yeah, I'd say generally we, we sort of erred in the, the direction of quality and durability. I think that was a good decision there. Uh, that, you know, people are really often quite surprised by how, how sturdy they are and how, how much they can do. Well, it's certainly amazing. I mean, you you look at some of the photos and videos that you have on your website, and like you said, if you didn't know that it was a, a kayak that could fold up into something the size of a box, you you would never know. There's no indica- there's no visual indication that it that it even does that, and you know, there's there's nothing that gives that secret away. So it's it, you know, it's it's very well done. Um, but you know, you you mentioned the kind of cost versus quality trade-off and i think that's something that a lot of designers have to grapple with you know in, in terms of the resources that they have available and you know how do you reconcile that with the quality of the product that you want to put out and and put your name on how did you decide how to how to tackle that in a way it was kind of a lot of uh Initially, a lot of small decisions adding up to a big one. Um, we didn't sort of start out by saying, you know, this is the this is the price point we want. This is the market segment we want. This is how many we think we can sell at that price. It was more like, what's what are the decisions we want to make for this as a product, and then kind of where does that lead us? We're all happy with it, but there were definitely some leaps of faith with the price point. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that we're coming into a market right now as well where we're seeing, especially after the recession and um, just better quality, you know, fewer better things that um, we're at a time that people are accepting that in in much greater numbers and even demanding that. You mentioned that you didn't necessarily design it, you know, with a certain market segment in mind. We're just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about who you found your customer ended up being and who it, yeah, who is yeah. it, if it's who you thought it was going to be. So, the, yeah, there were some things that were more or less in line with what we expected and some things that were surprises for sure. I'd say the the core group has sort of been active urbanites, um, which we more or less expected, you know, people who are outdoorsy but live in spaces where, um, you know, storage and transport is at a premium. 
Some surprises have been that baby boomers and older people have responded really well, and in a lot of cases, not even the uh, collapsibility. We've gotten pictures of people still strapping them on their car racks, but just uh, <laughs> the weight that it's much easier to uh, to lift than a, a sixty pound, you know, getting a sixty pound kayak on a roof rack if you're a, a sixty year old woman is no easy task. So that's been a surprisingly big big part of of who's been buying them, and then there have been some. Uh, some really cool outliers. There have been sailors who've bought them on, uh, you know, long haul sailing trips wow. for boats to explore harbors or landing spots. There have been people taking them on motorcycles and horses and <laughs> all sorts of forms of transportation and uh, horses. taking them. Say really, more about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was just one that we know of. But still, yeah. that you know yeah. about it and somebody's told you, that's amazing. How has that informed kind of the roadmap? for your product going into the future? We've definitely taken a lot of customer feedback for, for new products and other things. Um, and we've kind of gone in a couple pretty different directions with it. The last boat we released, the Coast, is uh, more of an expedition sea kayak. It's a 16-foot boat that can you know, handle pretty much anything in the water and can hold a lot of gear. And that's you know, more for the, the serious outdoors people who've always been some part of our customer base. And we're also releasing a boat next year that's uh, kind of 180 degrees in the other direction. It's kind of a more casual, recreational kayak. It's a bit wider and more stable and has a really big cockpit, so it's much easier to get in and out of. So, yeah, we're, we're branching out in multiple directions. Well, I love that, that you've, you had a problem of your own that you sought out to solve. And in doing so, which, you know, when a product or an idea is successful, it usually is the case that then it becomes this thing that solves all these other problems you didn't know other people had. And that, mm -hmm. that lightness and that collapsibility and being able to transport it around, you know, it went, just when you talk about those few examples here, and I'm sure there's many more of um, different uses and things that people love about it, uh, then suddenly there's this uh, uh, solution that um, mm -hmm. that wasn't necessarily defined as a problem for all of these people that you you've solved, and it's uh, it's enabling you to grow a business. Now, you know, you started out with the original one, started out building it for yourself, and now you're growing as a company. Um, you know, talk a little bit about building that business around the idea and um, how your process has evolved now that you're working with a larger team. So when we officially launched the business, there were three of us, basically me doing the design, one guy doing finance and operations, and one guy doing sales and marketing. Uh, now there are nine of us. Yeah, there have been a lot of adaptations, and uh, it's been a, a big learning process getting to that over the last few years. And I think it's, yeah, it's always evolving. We're always trying to figure out better ways of working with each other and uh, trying to figure out how to, how to do some things differently and how to, how to learn some things from other people who've done it already. You're able to accomplish a lot more, but at the same time, uh, you're also growing. So everybody's job becomes bigger as well, I'm sure. We follow Oru Kayak, obviously, on social media. You have some great users just sharing amazing photos and amazing videos. I was just watching the one in Iceland. That video really captivated me, and I was going to ask exactly what you were saying here, which is, how does it feel to see your kayak, your creation in these vast landscapes around the world? It's pretty incredible, I think. Um, yeah, I, I hope to do some of that myself someday, <laughs> but I've uh, been keeping pretty busy for the last couple of years. So we have some ambassadors who have pretty great jobs, apparently. Yes, obviously. <laughs> 
Well, you're using the uh, the the uh, images to uh, a really great uh, mm, great end. I just wanted to shift gears a little bit here and just talk about your you know your role within the company. I mean, I know your title is Chief Design Officer, and I think that's something that's very interesting and and the way that that role is becoming more and more prevalent in in business these days and i'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about you know how you chose that specific role and that specific title um because i think it's you know it it just says something about the values that your company has and the values that you place on design so i'm just wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the the thinking and motivation behind that well, obviously, the, the company grew out of a, a product rather than, um, you know, saying this is this is our market research and this is what we're going to do. It's, um, it's that I'd been working on this thing for a few years and it was more like, how do we bring this to life? Um, so I think, uh, yeah, design is, is really a, always been at the, the core of what we've done. It remains remains so now in a lot of ways. Um, there are more designers in the company than there are in any other department. Not just me anymore. Um, I love that. The uh, yeah, <laughs> the chief design officer title uh, I think has become somewhat popular in Silicon Valley, which um, <laughs> you know it's double-edged sword. Uh, on the plus side, I think it is good recognition that designers uh, do have a lot to offer in, in how a company grows, not just in the actual products, but in the, the ways that we think about things and the ways that we look at problems. I think one of the, the most interesting things that I've learned is, I'd, you know, I'd say four years ago, I was, you know, kind of the least businessy person that probably most people who knew me could think of. But I've, you know, now I, I really actually enjoy reading like business case studies and, and kind of learning about how other businesses do things. And I, I think it's because I've learned to see it as just another kind of design problem in a way. How do you analyze all these moving targets and try to, you know, get the most elegant solution to that solves the most problems at once? Uh, I think it really is applicable to how you look at that. Yeah. And, and like you're saying, you know, we, we obviously do a lot of talk about design with the conference and the podcasts and what we all do as designers. Um, but, uh, and we all say that designers are problem solvers or, um, create solutions to things or create ideas and new ways to do things. And that, that can include processes, business, uh, you know, and it's just, you get into it once you kind of get this momentum and you have an interest in it. Um, I think designers just start wanting to delve deep into whatever is interesting to them. And, um, you know, as your business grows, you know, you just, you've got some big investment in there and, and you start to see that design as a, as a different thing. Um, what I'm interested in too, about the chief design officer, because in Silicon Valley, that is becoming uh, kind of a, I don't want to say a trendy thing, but it is becoming, it, there's the rise of it. It's becoming more prevalent right. and it's starting to infiltrate other realms, you know, so like outdoor design, apparel equipment, a lot of what we talk about in the uh, active and, er, and uh, outdoor environment, that's just starting to pop up. Um, mm-hmm. and is actually you know, quite, quite needed, in my opinion, but doesn't really exist yet. That design leadership has, uh, a, mm-hmm. has, is not existing. Is it, how did you pick it? I mean, did you know chief design officers before? Was there something in architecture that already existed, or where did you pick up on that title? Yeah, it wasn't 
wasn't anything too specific. I mean, obviously, I'd seen it around uh, Silicon Valley a few times. Um, I think, uh, yeah, you know, we kind of talked about it as a group, and one of the other things that came up was chief innovation officer, mm -hmm. and uh, we kind of chose design officer over that partly because I think um, innovation is just sort of a really overused word that's <laughs> lost a lot of meaning because of it. Um, but also, I think there's something about the... Uh, the craft and the practice of design that I really wanted to be in there. Um, yeah. It's, you know, not just about analysis and the way of looking things, but it's also about the craft of actually being able to sit down and figure things out. And I think that's also a really important part of how we, how we think about things and do things. Um, mm -hmm. but we're, we're very hands-on. We try a lot of different things and that, that, you know, part of that is captured by design as well. Yeah. It, who are some of your, uh, you know, your your role models, your mentors? I mean, did did you pull that from more of the architecture side of of uh, of your world? Um, you know, who in, who inspires you? Who do you look to? Um, is there anyone in particular? Of all designers, probably the ones I admire the most are still architects. Um, mm. I guess partly <laughs> partly it's maybe some nostalgia over. Uh, over the field, um, but yeah. partly there's something I really admire about the sort of the scale and how how long it takes to make things and how long they last. Um, and so, yeah, in the architecture world, I think I'm I sort of split in respect between people who are um, really sort of relentless in, uh, innovators and people who um, I feel like tap into something that's kind of more elemental or. Uh, I don't know, you can almost say ancient. Mm. Um, and I think that's, you know, I like to think that's sort of reflected in what we do too. It's it's sort of a, a very innovative modern take on something that's also very ancient and traditional in other ways. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite uh, style or styles of architecture uh, yourself personally that you're drawn to the most? I'm definitely drawn to things that are simple and minimal and elegant. Um, I'm drawn to things that use uh, materials in really expressive or unusual ways. Um, I'd say, you know, I tend to stay away from slick white minimalism, but I'm, uh, I'm really interested in projects that uh, sort of highlight one material in a way that, that's really kind of deep and engaging. What are some of the things that are on the horizon that you can talk about or want to talk about? You know, what's, what's next for Oru Kayak? Say on the the near horizon, as I mentioned, we're um, we're coming out with a, a new recreational boat that's uh, a little simpler and more casual and uh, friendly. And uh, we're going to be doing a lot of work on just kind of evolving and expanding the the current line, doing some things with colors and prints and accessories and customization and things like that. Excited for the next next period. Do you think you'll bring any of those uh, to Kickstarter the way you've done with your previous boats? Yeah, yeah, I think we'll, I'm sure we'll keep using Kickstarter as a tool in, um, in different ways. We've, we've found it to be great so far. Yeah, it seems yeah. to be a good medium for, for what you yeah. do. I have a question too. I'm curious if you see anything interesting or different or unexpected in how uh, men versus women responded to the Oro Kayak? Because I really feel like when I see it, um, you know, as a female, we often get, especially in the outdoor industry, we get fed 
you know, I, I, I hate to say shrink and pink. That's way overused and we need something <laughs> new. But, um, uh-huh. but we do get that option you know, coming down to yeah. us a lot. And, and there's a lot of backlash to that. And it's really refreshing to see something that is just, it's just beautiful. It's not geared towards, you know, one type of person or another, the artwork that you put on some of the, the different models, you know, you've got different graphics that go on each one. There's nothing insulting about them. They're very, they're pretty, mm. but they're not masculine or feminine. Mm. Um, and I'm curious what response, if you've noticed any, anything around you know appealing to yeah to women yeah that's a great question both for the the product and the design and the branding that's that's something that we were conscious of from the beginning um we wanted something that would um i think be gender neutral especially yeah in contrast to a lot of other outdoor products and kayaks specifically where you sort of have you know this kind of hunter green um and slightly macho logos and things like that Overall, like we we've still had more more men than women purchasing, um, and that's something we're we're trying to make more of an effort at this year in our marketing, especially um, to see how we can we can address that. So, yeah, hopefully, hopefully we can uh, we can get more women outside also. Well, cool. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we yeah, really appreciate you. it. This podcast is a project of Structure Event, the creative conference for the active outdoor and urban design industry. For more information about the podcast or the conference, check out our website at structureevent.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes and tell your friends. Thanks for listening.